Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, the focus today, Seb, is about people who work for themselves and how they're going to be helped because uh, there's a rescue package theoretically coming from the Chancellor today as the virus pandemic, of course, threatens incomes for everyone, but not least, of course, those who don't have a guaranteed income. Uh, Rishi Sunak's going to be announcing assistance to the self-employed in what will be his fourth set of emergency measures coping with the economic fallout. It comes as the government battles growing criticism of its response to the spread of the virus, which has been slower than some countries. The UK, of course, now having more than 9,500 confirmed cases as, of course, the virus continues to spread across the globe. Yeah, we've heard a lot from the government, several successive packages to cushion the economic blow to help people struggling through the virus. But the self-employed have really been overlooked in a lot of that. The number of people who are self-employed surging, of course, some 30 percent since the financial crisis. We now see almost one in six British workers uh, who are now self-employed. So a significant group. One idea being proposed in Wales is universal basic income. It gets talked about every now and then, the idea that you pay everybody a certain fixed amount over a certain period of time to help them through. So joining us now to discuss this is Applied Cymru's leader, Adam Price, who's leading the call for this universal basic income. Uh, Adam, first of all, talk us through the details here. How much are you proposing to give and how long for? Well, what we've been talk, uh, calling for this week is for the Welsh government to take the lead. And um, while we're still waiting, of course, for uh, the UK government to step in to at least provide some kind of basic floor, an emergency basic income, um, you know, for this first month and then review it, uh, we've we worked that out on the median earnings, the average earnings of the self-employed in Wales, 210,000 people. Uh, here in Wales uh, is £295 a week. So at least provide that on top of any other income from any other source that uh, the uh, self-employed are still having so that they they can plan on the basis that at least that additional amount is is coming in. Now, we're all obviously waiting for bated breath. 
with bated breath to see what uh, Rishi Sunak and the UK government are going to be saying uh, later today. Um, my worry is is that um, there'll be there'll be a, a narrow focus. So uh, many of the self-employed will fall between the gaps of uh, a, um, a, a scheme which we are here. It may match some degree of the 80% scheme for employees, but it'll be targeted at those that genuinely need it in the UK government's view. The problem is, is that it's almost inevitable. You've set a system that is complex as that, that a lot of people uh, will fall outside of the yeah. ambit of it. And that's why, that's why a basic income in this, in this circumstance certainly is a much simpler system. Well, it is simple, Adam, but the problem, I guess, I mean, we can hear people shouting it almost, is that what you'd be doing is helping a lot of people who already are, are, will still have a continuing quite comfortable salary. So the money that we have, which is limited, obviously, I mean, how much we throw at it, there is a limit to it. Isn't it wrong to give it to people who probably don't need it uh, as well as those that do? Well, two quick answers to, to, to that. In terms of getting it... Uh, you know, so well, okay. Well, you can recoup that down the line if you like to the tax system. Um, and secondly, in terms of uh, have we got limited money? Well, under these circumstances, actually, we should be turning on the to- uh, the taps um, in the Bank of England, not using f- uh, traditional fiscal means. So, uh, you know, uh, having to use the government's money directly fiscally to do it. And of course, that does raise the question: Well, how are you going to? put the taxes later to pay for it. Well, you've, you've got something called the central bank. The central bank, we used to talk about printing money. They don't even have to do that anymore, do they? Because they can create electronic money. They have a money creation function. Indeed, the Bank of England last week created uh, £200 billion pounds of money as part of a stimulus exercise. Well, quantitative easing, where it's, a, it's a concept we're very familiar uh, following the financial crisis in 2008. Well, why not have quantitative easing for the people? So you could fund an emergency basic income actually through that means, which actually removes uh, the issue in terms of uh, uh, you know, adding uh, further debt to the government's uh, balance sheet. Is the solution not, though, to, to cap it at a certain level? If you want to help the people who need it most, but you don't want to be slapdash about the way that you dish out the money, just put a level on at, at a certain point and help everybody below that who are likely to be struggling the most. Well, I, I think even with an emergency basic income, there, there, there's a case for you know additional hardship funds, uh, etc. But I, I think the, the basic principle is: look, you've got to get this money to people very, very quickly. You've got to get it out out the door. And why the government, of course, has been struggling for two to three weeks now to come up with a system is because it essentially wants the means test, and it doesn't hasn't been able to find a, re, a ready way to be able to means test that. The, the, the opposite approach is to say, look, forget about that. Within a unique emergency situation, the easiest way is to get an emergency basic income out to everyone. And you know, if 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 it arrives, if it if that the checks that are being sent out as part of the stimulus exercise in America are also going out. I mean, they're one-off checks, of course, rather than monthly checks. They're going to everyone. As a, and you know, people are accepting. Okay, it may mean that. Some people are getting that money that don't actually need it. But the thing that you can absolutely say is that everyone who does need the money is getting it. And you can't say that 
if you have a targeted scheme, because whatever the UK government comes up with later today, I can bet you know that my inbox and every other elected member throughout the UK will be full of cases of people that are falling outside the parameters of that scheme. Well, take us take us through some of your inbox more widely, though, because it's very interesting in this situation to get a sense, because often the focus inevitably in these things tends to be on the metropolis, even when uh, Parliament is no longer meeting. But how is it working in Wales? What are, what are your constituents saying to you about the circumstances more generally of what's happening, the, the lockdown, having to stay at home, not being able to go out to work? How is that affecting their lives? Uh, in, in all kinds of ways. I mean, I'm in self-isolation myself uh, at the moment. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm in the fortunate position. I, I, I will get a paycheck at the end of the month, won't I? There's a lot of uh, uh, confusion about who should be going to work uh, and who shouldn't. Um, there's particular concern around the construction industry where, you know, major construction sites, it's almost impossible for people to operate at that sort of two-meter uh, um, safe distance. Um, companies which are some of them deciding to lay people off rather than availing themselves of the 80% uh, furlough scheme, uh, partly because they're being advised by their by advisors that there's so much lack of clarity over that. So that's a that's a real concern. We have a a, a very very significant cluster of cases in the southeast of Wales in the Gwenta area. Uh, one, I think the highest now in the UK per, per head of population. And so there's real concern there. The director of public health in that region of Wales uh, compared the situation there now to the situation in northern Italy and uh, a real fear that the, the uh, NHS in that, in that region, very, very low le- level of intensive care beds, is about to be overwhelmed in the same way that we saw in Lombardy a few weeks ago. Yeah, Adam, why Gwent? Why would that be affected so badly? It's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a question that we're grappling with at the moment. I, I think the, the first minister yesterday said that it was a random cluster, but it seems to be continuing. So that suggests that there's something else uh, here as an explanation. I think the chief medical officer this morning has given a different uh, explanation, saying that it's because of a higher level of testing in that region and because it's the border region with England. So it's closer to London, which is the other uh, uh, high area of concentration in the UK. But I I don't think anyone has a definitive answer to that at this this stage. We're trying to look at uh, solutions which could help uh, limit the pressure. So much as we've seen the temporary hospital uh, being uh, built now in the Excel Centre in London, we have uh, a a partly government-owned international convention centre in uh, Newport, uh, the army has two uh, field uh, hospitals in storage uh, in Wales, one large one, one small one. So we're trying to see whether we could repurpose that convention centre, its uh, 20,000 square metre facility, to create that kind of temporary uh, facility. Uh, and Adam, what about enforcement? Uh, the Guardian today talking about home office powers coming that include uh, the ability for police to be able to tell people to go home, slap them with fines, using reasonable force to escort them home. Do we need these tougher powers? I was looking at a poll from JL Partners with some quite alarming statistics. 5% of people, for example, still not washing their hands. You'd have thought that's step one. But clearly lots of people still on the streets. Yes, and uh, the police are already using uh, the powers that they have in North Wales. Um, uh, they, I think, a family that uh, travelled to uh, North Wales, pre- presumably uh, as, uh, as as tourist visitors. I I think 
um, were asked to return uh, last night uh, to to England because it was non-essential travel. So that is all already happening. Of course, you know, there's there's always a limit to what the authorities can do, and you know, uh, um, I mean, you know, the police are not a- able to enforce the washing of hands. You know, we've all got to use common sense and you know listen to the guidance we all have a role to play i mean we we are all of us the first line of defense for everyone else and so it's really really important that people follow the rules follow the guidelines and you know help as much as they can because that's the number one way that we're going to help uh, nhs and save lives success is more than a destination it's a path you take one step at a time It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics. Roger, kick us off. Yeah, well, there was a big piece in the Financial Times this morning by Gordon Brown. Remember him? Uh, He's called End the Dog-Eat-Dog Mentality to Tackle the Crisis. He's talking about the G20. Now, he says the G20 must underwrite and accelerate a concerted global effort to develop, manufacture, and distribute vaccines and treatments. Every nation, he says, needs almost simultaneously and at scale testing kits, ventilators, cleaning chemicals, protective equipment. To achieve this, instead of dog-eat-dog bidding wars that encourage profiteering, the G20 should back the world for efforts to coordinate and increase production and procurement of medical supplies. Over time, it must build a global stockpile and workforce. Tariffs and other protectionist barriers must go, he says. Nothing should prevent what's mass-produced in and for one country from being mass-produced for others. That's his, his prescription, really, for how to tackle this. Well, he's certainly someone who knows something about a crisis. Uh, And we look ahead to today when Boris Johnson apparently taking part in a G20 video conference to try and kick through a few of these issues with his uh, world leader colleagues around the world. Uh, But let's bring it back to Britain. One in 20 Britons apparently losing their job because of the coronavirus outbreak. This is according to YouGov. It also found that 9%, almost one in 10, had experienced a reduction in hours or pay. This was taken on the first two days of the official lockdown uh, after we had all of that uh, banning of unnecessary movement uh, and uh, closure of non-essential businesses that we're all, of course, living through. And then the, the Department for Work and pensions receiving 477,000 new claims for state support payments so quite a lot of people now starting to lean on the government for help and then that wonderful or rather awful daily mail regular headline about house sales and apparently house sales are set to plunge by 60 percent in the next three months the slump in the second quarter which is usually amongst the most active sales periods comes as the economy is battered by the pandemic and according to the real estate portal zoopla it's going to be followed by a further decline in three months through to the to september now it says the outbreak has completely changed market dynamics as the uk lockdown has made it near 
near impossible for sellers to market their homes and, of course, for buyers to view them. Yeah, the question, I suppose, being discussed around virtual dinner tables around the country, what does this do for prices? If nobody can buy anything or sell anything, do things hold stable or does sentiment hit? We will just have to wait and see. And then you've got uh, home testing. The government saying that three and a half million kits that show whether someone has been exposed to coronavirus are expected to be available Within days, the director of the National Infection Service, Sharon Peacock, says scientists from Oxford University first need to finish evaluating them for public use. Uh, but speaking to Bloomberg earlier, Stephen Riley, professor of infectious disease dynamics at Imperial College London, remains sceptical. We have pieced together lots and lots of evidence. And per person who gets this, your chances of having a severe outcome, like as a direct result of being infected, are probably around 50 times greater than during the 09 pandemic, hmm. possibly even more so than that. We, we do have those numbers that in the literature, they're just more difficult to explain than the numbers we would get from some idealized testing. But hmm. we don't have time to waste our testing. Okay, so that's a slightly different message to, to what some other health professionals have said and certainly what the World Health Organization has, has said about testing, 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 tracing and so on. Can I clarify a little yeah, bit? The testing on. is important and there are a lot of things that we will learn from the testing. What The point that I'm making is that mm. we need to take a precautionary stance as individuals and assume that this is a severe infection. Right. Well, that was uh, Stephen Riley, Professor of Infectious Disease Dynamics at Imperial College London, speaking earlier to me and to my colleague Caroline Hepker. Now, that's an interesting line. Let's pick up on some of these stories with Bloomberg's government editor, Tim Ross, who joins us now on the line. First of all, on that point about testing, the government has made a big thing about this being the way forward. There's been talk about millions of, of tests, home tests being sent out. And yet we have someone like Stephen Riley, a real authority on this, saying that may be not necessarily the best way to go forward because we know, we think we know how bad this is and we need to tackle it. Well, I think I think that's, there's just a huge amount of conflicting information, isn't there? I mean, yesterday at the daily Downing Street press conference, which uh, some of us were watching, um, the government was saying they, they really don't know at all the scale of this outbreak. And there was a model that came out of Oxford University and caused an awful lot of attention earlier in the week that suggested as, as, as much as perhaps half the UK population had already had coronavirus. Um, just a very, very different sort of a picture. Um, and in response to a question on, on that, uh, the government's chief scientific advisor basically said, we just don't know. So until I think the testing is more reliable, it's going to be very hard to, to get any sense of, of of, the, of where the UK is really on on, on the uh, on the trajectory of this particular pandemic. And Tim, is there any value to this at all, given the fact that nobody has ruled out the possibility that you can get coronavirus twice if you test negative or even positive and you show that you've had it? The possibility remains that you could get it again. That's another another good question. It's, it's, a, it's a completely new disease. No one really knows how it works yet, um, and. Uh, people are assuming, and, and this is what we hear from the government's top experts in these press conferences, they assume that it will behave as other similar diseases have behaved, uh, and that actually once you've had it once, you do have a degree of immunity to it um, until perhaps it mutates. But uh, again, you know, there's, there's no guarantee here. The hope, and I think Johnson politically 
and this is where it's interesting for people who cover the UK political scene like I do, I think Johnson politically wants to give a message of hope that there could be a game changer on the horizon in the form of these tests so that we can all look forward to a time when we're allowed out of our homes again and we can go back to work and life can somewhat return towards normal. Uh, but, you know, it's one thing to be a purveyor of hope and it's another to actually deal with the reality of the situation and that reality might just be very different. Yeah, I mean, talking of hope, I mean, the hope, I suppose, at the moment today is amongst self-employed people hoping that the government's going to come up with something that will help them get through this because amongst all the government announcements about various forms of support, the self-employed, I think, feel fairly neglected. Um, do we know what plan the Chancellor's going to come up with in terms of the self-employed? Well, we know when he's going to tell us all about it and that we think will be around four or five o'clock uh, on Thursday afternoon. Um, and we think they're going to aim for something. I mean, Johnson has certainly acknowledged at least the demand for parity of treatment with people who are em employees. Um, and the announcement last week was that the government would basically guarantee the salaries, 80% of the median salary up to a limit of £2,500 a month for, for workers who are at risk of being laid off by their employer. Uh, for self-employed people, we don't have really any of the details. There are conflicting reports around this morning of just how generous that package for the self-employed will be. Um, there are about 5 million people in the UK currently who are self-employed and who are in line for nothing by way of help with the virus as things stand. So they will be hoping that it's obviously on the more generous side. Um, the Resolution Foundation... Um, has done a study on this and also the Institute for Fiscal Studies has put some numbers out this morning which are quite interesting. They suggest actually that a million, about a million self-employed workers are now in sectors experiencing a really big collapse in demand and that, you know, they're already, a lot of these people are in line for a, a very heavy hit to their incomes. So we'll get the details a bit later. Do we have any idea, Tim, how long it will take to reach people? Because that's another issue that often these things, granted they're, they're rolling them out very quickly, but in terms of implementation could take time and lots of these people presumably need the money ASAP. Yes, that's always the difficulty. And the same is true of the, of the employed workers support levels. Actually, you know, we don't yet have the numbers for how many people have lost their jobs. It's not going to be small so far. I think it's going to be a pretty brutal picture when we get when we start getting some of these numbers. And in terms of the politics, we're at a very interesting point, Tim, because Parliament has ceased to meet. What the government does now, there is a sense in which it does without oversight or much oversight. Is the concern out there that that some some of these things perhaps may not be tested as well as they should be before implementation, uh, and and with such big numbers, that really matters. Yes, I think there is concern. And, and in one of his last acts yesterday, uh, the, 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 the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, I think was raising the point that the announcement today on health and self-employed will be made when the Parliament has already been has already broken up for the Easter recess. And, and it, it broke up yesterday early uh, to try and stop the spread of coronavirus. And, and there will be no opportunity for MPs to ask the Chancellor give more details or to question his policy in any way uh, until, you know, a, a, at least another four weeks have elapsed, by which point, you know, we, we could be in a completely different world. And I think that, that is a concern. It's also, as you know, 
uh, is worth pointing out, I think, that the UK's action in suspending Parliament um, is actually rather different from the approach taken in other countries, in Italy and Germany and Spain. Uh, they are implementing social distancing measures, but have not taken the decision to close Parliament. Um, so it's another one of those details in which the UK is taking a different approach. And very briefly, I've heard some reports around a government of national unity, a wartime style uh, setup. Is there any mileage in that at all? I just can't really see that it's in Boris Johnson's interest. It could be in his interest if it begins to look like there's a real political divide here. You can see a calculation in which, you know, he's, he's staring perhaps at the prospect of Keir Starmer as Labour leader. Uh, who's, you know, who may have uh, the wind in his sails when he starts the job, if he gets the job next month. And uh, rather than facing criticism if the government's uh, actions are not doing the trick when it comes to containing this outbreak, he might want to bring Starmer in and bind him to the policy in some way. But that, that feels like a long way off. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.